Our Father, the scriptures tell us that every good and perfect gift come down to us from you. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, And what do you have that you did not receive? The fact is, everything we have is a gift from you. We've got beautiful weather today. That's a gift from you. Here we are after a day of work. The fact that we work and can earn a living and provide for our families and support them, that's a gift from you. What do you have that you did not receive? If we work in tech, you gave us a brain that gets that stuff. You gave it to us when you formed and fashioned us in our mother's womb. We all come out of the womb with certain bents, with certain skills, with certain strengths, with certain weaknesses. And those gifts, some are gifted with people, some are gifted with their hands, some are gifted at math, some are gifted at... Um, being visionaries. Some are gifted in how to implement a vision. We all need one another because none of us have all the gifts. But whatever it is that we have, it's a gift from you. That puts everything in perspective. That keeps us from being proud. That keeps us from being arrogant that keeps us from hubris and self-love and self-focus. What a great God you are. You give us what we need at the moment we need it. This life, this Christian life is a hard life, there is a life that is harder, and that is the life without Christ. But in the Christian life, as we read our Bibles, we find that you use our trials and adversities and our sufferings to mature us, to take us from immaturity to maturity, to get us off of mother's milk and put us on to... Um, meat and the vegetables of your word. And there are times when we get fatigued and we get worn out, we get discouraged. We feel like we're not progressing, we're falling behind. There are times when we are beset with weaknesses and we find ourselves in a situation where we are in great need, great need, and if you don't come through we don't see how we're going to make it. But then, in your perfect timing, you come through and you deliver us. There's a gift. You've always gifted your people with manna, what they need, when they need it, the exact right moment. You're never early and you're never late. You're right on time.
So we want to be men of gratitude tonight. Whatever it is we're facing, whatever it is we're, that we're dealing with, give us thankful hearts. Give us grateful hearts. Because the joy of the Lord is my strength. You'll keep us going. You've given us salvation through Christ, and you will sustain us, and you will navigate us all the way to the finish line and to promotion. For this, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing our study on the Ten Commandments. We're calling it Built on Bedrock, the Ten Commandments. When God gave those Ten Commandments to Moses, Exodus 20, Moses went up to Sinai, came down. God had given him two tablets of stone. And as we said last week, those tablets of stone represent bedrock. The Ten Commandments are the moral law of God. The, the Ten Commandments are for all people in all cultures, in all generations, for all time. And the question comes up, well, what if somebody on some island somewhere in the Pacific doesn't have the Bible and doesn't know about Jesus? The scriptures tell us that God has written his law upon the hearts of every individual. Every individual knows the law of God. Now, the moral law of God was given in those Ten Commandments. Yet we are living in an age, and we've been talking about this, we are living in an age that is running from those commandments, that abhors those commandments, that actually hates those commandments. We are um, living in days of exceptional evil. We are living in days where we are witnessing the hyperinflation of lawlessness, we're seeing things that we could never imagine we would see in America. Absolute mob rule. Absolute anarchy. Psalm 11.3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You just keep following Christ. You stay in the scriptures. But this is where we are. And it's not getting any better. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that in the last days, lawlessness would increase. And it is increasing. There are all kinds of biblical indications that we are coming, that we are in the last days. Now the question is, well, when is Christ returning? Obviously, we don't know. But Jesus said in Matthew 24, you'll see certain signs, you'll see certain indicators. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. Lawlessness will increase. And we're watching this before our eyes. It's increasing exponentially. So we return to the bedrock of God's moral law uh, in Exodus 20. Every law comes from somewhere. The phrase we often hear is, when we are for a law, you'll hear the retort, you're just trying to legislate morality. Every law is legislating somebody's morality. 
The question is, whose? The Ten Commandments have been the bedrock of Western civilization, or as Churchill would refer to it, Christian civilization. Churchill was not all that interested in, in school. He was bored to tears. But there were sub, some subjects that he excelled in and was fascinated in. Uh, he grew up in England. In the, uh, you know, he was born, I think, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, he was born under Queen Victoria. So as a result, he was, he, in, in his schooling, he was taught scripture memory. And he was first in his class. He knew the word of God. He knew the scriptures. That was the norm. That was common. Many of us, uh, as G.I. Packer said, I quoted him a few weeks ago, if you're over 50, you can remember when the Ten Commandments were posted in classrooms. You can remember when you would memorize the Ten Commandments. But uh, some things have changed. And as a result, we've got what we've got. Last week, we were on the fifth commandment in Exodus 20, and we're going to follow up on that again tonight, the same commandment. It's a commandment that is, it's microscopic and it's telescopic, as are all the commandments. What, what I mean by that is, tonight we're on the commandment, Exodus 20, verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. The idea behind this commandment, as I said last week, is the idea that we are to submit to God-ordained authorities. That's the idea. We are submit we are to submit to God-ordained authorities. Children are to obey their father and mother. And there are other authorities and there are other institutions. We'll look at that in a minute. That's the big picture. That's the telescope of honor thy father and mother. Um, it's the whole, it's just not in the home. It's in all of society, it's in all of a culture. Everyone is under authority. The centurion said to Jesus, I am a man under authority. Now, he was high-ranking, but he was under authority. Because no matter who you are, as the great hymn writer Bob Dylan once said, I thought I'd throw that in, because he did write some pretty good stuff. You may be the heavyweight champ of the world, but you've got to serve somebody. That was a great song. You got to serve somebody. Doesn't matter who you are, you got to serve somebody. When you're a kid, you get this idea in, in your head when I grow up, nobody is going to tell me what to do. Boy, were we mistaken. Everybody is telling me what to do. They tell me how much money I get to keep out of my paycheck. Now, I don't know if you've seen that new short form the IRS has come out with. I mean, it's very convenient. Um, 
it, it really just, I mean, there's just two things. Number one, how much did you make? Number two, send it all in. <laughs> Very convenient. I don't care who you are or what your title is or how much education, you've got to serve somebody. You've got, you might have a lot of people under you, but you've got people over you. It's how civilization works. And, and you know, it's interesting, these commandments, and we'll see next week with the next commandment, you shall not murder. See, it's not only the telescope, the big picture, but Jesus with these commandments, he gets out a microscope and he goes down deep. Not the universe, into your heart. And we'll see next week, you shall not murder. See, he'll, he's going to microscope that because, oh yeah, well, hey, you know, I'm, I've never killed anybody. I'm not Charles Manson. Yeah, but Jesus said, have you ever wanted to? Have you ever thought about it? Same thing with adultery. Oh, I've never done that. Yeah, but have you ever wanted to? He goes to the heart. These, these commandments, they'll get you. And the thing about the law and the thing about the commandments, the, the, the thing about the, it, it's good. But it drives us to Christ because we can't keep them. We just can't do it. That's why we need a Savior. That's why Christ came. To die for us. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, I delivered to you as a first importance. This is the most important thing in all the world. I delivered to you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he rose on the third day. That he appeared to Peter, to Cephas. That he appeared to uh, the 12. That he appeared to over 500 at one time. And lastly, he appeared to me. That's either true or it isn't. Nobody, uh, nobody took a plea deal on the resurrection of Christ. No, uh, there were no John Deans, if you're old enough to remember that. Yeah, you know, we'll give you a plea deal if you say it's not true, and if you turn evidence against your buddies. Nobody did that with Christ. They saw him. They died because he was the risen Lord. They saw him. Go ahead and kill me. He's God. I'm going to be with him. Now, this is the gospel. We need a savior because we can't keep the law. Yet the law is good, and the law is for our benefit. Do a little review here, but it helps to do a little review. The Ten Commandments are restated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. We pointed this out before. <clears throat> Excuse me. And in Deuteronomy 4, just prior to the restatement of the Ten Commandments. In Deuteronomy 4.39, we see that there is great benefit in these commandments. Know therefore today, and take it to your heart, that the Lord, he is God in heaven, above and on the earth below, there is no other. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I am giving you today, watch this, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, that you may live long in the land. The idea is with favor, which the Lord your God has given you for all time. In other words, God is giving us this moral law, these Ten Commandments, for our good, that we might enjoy life, that we might enjoy his favor, that we might have his blessing. 
He's not a killjoy. He's not against us. He's for us. But see, we tend to think just the opposite. So tonight, I want to follow up on honor thy father and mother and this whole idea of authority. And I want to begin by giving you two, two premises. The first premise is this. As the family goes, so goes the nation. As the family goes, so goes the nation. What is a family? Well, that was always pretty clear until Jimmy Carter had a conference, the White House conference on families, families, plural. That had never happened before, and people, families? What do you mean families? Because we knew what a family was. Family is a father and a mother and children. But you see, there was a social earthquake going on that first made its appearance in the 60s. We talked about some of that last week. And as a result, well, you just can't say family because that's judgmental. It's families. There are different kinds of fam families. Actually, not according to Scripture. Now, we have blended families. And, but you see, even when you have a blended family, you're following God's pattern. If you've been through the heartbreak of a divorce, and you, you get what I'm saying. But we've taken this family thing and we've blown it up all out of perspective. As the family goes, so goes the nation. What is a nation? A na uh, well, well, wait a minute. Let's, let's do it this way. Someone said that a family is a small civilization. And they really are. Your family is a civilization. Uh, yeah. But no man is an island, and we don't live by ourselves with our families. They used to. Maybe you lived 100 miles, you know. Maybe you homesteaded 100 miles from anybody else in the 1800s. But then eventually people show up, so then you got a, you got a county. What's a county? It's comprised of families. And then you got a state. What's a state? It's families that live in different counties in the state. Then you got a nation. What's a nation? It's comprised of different states with counties with towns with families. Um, as the family goes, so goes the nation. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any nation. I don't know if you've seen uh, video clips of the protesters in Portland, the anarchists, who are disrupting traffic as the police are told to stand down and not get involved. And elderly people are being intimidated and elderly ladies in wheelchairs are being frightened and no one is doing anything. <laughs> That's, you know, just when you think you can't be shocked anymore, 
What is it? It's the hyperinflation of lawlessness. It's not stopping. It's proliferating. Can you imagine such a thing? And nobody's doing anything. You know what this is? When these protesters are disrupting traffic and intimidating elderly people and an elderly woman in a wheelchair who's defenseless, you know what that is? That's lawlessness. Now, let's ask this question. What kind of homes do those protesters come from? Well, I'll tell you. They come from homes that violate the fifth commandment. Because they were not taught to respect authority. They were not taught to respect the elderly. Although the scriptures teach that. Let me give you a second premise. And I'm focusing in on this because this is a men's Bible study. And we've got fathers, and we've got grandfathers, and we have single guys, and guys who've never been married. Um, if you're single, it's a good thing to get married. You shouldn't run from marriage. You should embrace it. Now, there are different reasons single guys don't want to get married. But if you're walking with the Lord, now let's, let's just give this caveat. There is a gift of celibacy that God gives to certain individuals to not be married. John Stott, the great Bible teacher from England, was never married. Completely content. Others have been given that gift. Not saying everyone has to be married, but obviously it's God's plan for most men that they be married because if not, the race won't continue. It's good when young men embrace responsibility. It's interesting, we are waiting so long now for young men and women to get married that it's having all kinds of social ramifications. It's hard on young Christian women when it's hard to find a Christian man who will be willing to commit. Now, I don't want to get too far off this, but part of being a Christian man is you initiate and you embrace responsibility and you take it on. It's a good thing to get married. It's a good thing to have kids. It's a good thing to be exhausted. No, it is. It's a good thing. Because you're doing something of value. You're building a home. You're building a family. You're raising a small civilization. Those children are your arrows that you shoot into the next generation that will be functioning and influencing others for Christ when you're gone. So, second premise is this. The father must have a long-term plan for his family. The father must have a long-term plan for his family. And under that, in three ways. The father must have a long-term plan for his family, first, by appropriate discipline, 
Next, by teaching and transferring truth. Third, by modeling that truth with humility. So the father must have a long-term plan for his family. First, by appropriate discipline in the home. By teaching and transferring truth to the children and grandchildren. And next, by modeling that truth with humility. We said last week that God established the family as the foundational building block for all human relationships and culture. It is, the family is the cornerstone of human civilization. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Right out of the blocks in Genesis. In the image of God he made them, male and female he created them. It is not good for the man to be alone. So you see, and by the way, who wants to be lonely? Loneliness is tough. Loneliness is hard. We weren't made to be by ourselves. We were made to be connected. So it is good to get married. It is good to have children. And it is essential for Christian men to have a long-term plan. We said last week that the family is the first church, it is the first school, it is the first government. And we also should say that the family is to be the primary culture. John Stone Street and Brett Kunkel have written a book called A Practical Guide to Culture. A Practical Guide to Culture. The subtitle is Helping the Next Generation Navigate Today's World. It's excellent on understanding the culture in which your kids are being raised in and your grandchildren. It's the best thing I've ever read on it, hands down. And the gentleman right here said the same thing to me when he saw the book and walked up and he said, that's the best thing you can read for understanding what's going on if you've got kids. And he's right. John Stonehouse, along with Eric Metaxas, replaced uh, Chuck Colson on Breakpoint, the radio commentary. They share it now. Under the heading, What Culture Is and What It Is Not, they write these words. Among Christians, <clears throat> culture is a word that is much used but rarely defined. It comes from the Latin word, Cultura, which means agriculture. If plowing, tilling, and cultivating come to mind, they should. In its most basic sense, culture refers to what people do with the world. By the way, in Genesis, God gave man dominion over the earth to take care of it, to utilize it. Man has dominion over the earth. The earth doesn't have dominion over men. That's important to know in this day and age. In the most basic sense, culture refers to what people do with the world. We build, we invent, we imagine, we create, we tear down, we replace, we compose, we design, we emphasize, we dismiss, we embellish, we engineer. 
As Andy Crouch says, culture is what human beings make of the world. When we have um, a teenager who was listless and not motivated and doesn't have any drive or desire, we get concerned because we don't want them to waste their lives. So we try to help them get motivated and find something uh, that they are interested in that will motivate them so that they can be productive and do something with their life. Yeah, makes sense. You don't want to waste your life. You don't want to be a sluggard. He then, uh, these two guys go on and say this. When it comes to maintaining and perpetuating culture, institutions play the chief role. The primary institutions of a society are the family, the church, and government. But other institutions contribute to culture as well. Culture, culture determines how these institutions function and carry with them the powers to enforce a certain way of life. I want to say that again. Culture determines how these institutions function and carry with them the power to enforce a certain way of life. Now, if you back up, they say this. Every culture is comprised of ideas. And that's true. And ideas have consequences. We are, uh, as we watch what's going on in our nation, there is a great division. It's because there are two different sets of ideas. Totally different. One is that God is there and God is in charge. The other is that man is at the center of everything. The family is the building block. Just turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 127. Let me show you this. Psalm 127 and 128 really complement one another. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Now stop and think about that. There are people that love their families, love their kids, want to do good by their children, all of that kind of stuff. But you see, unless, unless a husband and wife, a mom and dad, are in submission to the Lord God Almighty, ultimately their efforts are going to be futile. Because you see, it's too big a task. <clears throat> it's beyond us. We don't have the wisdom. We don't have what it takes. <clears throat> Excuse me. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Well, who, who's building it? A dad and a mom. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Watch this. It's vain for you to rise up early. And to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in their sleep. You see, um, a lot of guys work hard, and that's good. That's a good thing, to work hard. But it's a heavy load to carry. And you see, what you need is a savior. What you need is an ultimate provider. And my God shall supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. You've seen this painting. I don't know who did it. 
I, I've just seen it. And it's a couple, they're, they're homesteaders probably 100 years ago. He's 30, he looks 60. She's probably 25, she looks 60. No makeup, old clothes. They're in the middle of the field. They've just planted the seed. He's on his knees. She's standing next with him with her hand on his shoulder. And they have their heads bowed, asking the Lord to help them. Because it, they have done their work. But if the Lord doesn't send the rain, and they didn't, they weren't a part of a water district. They didn't have any irrigation. It was them and the Lord God Almighty, and that was it. And if he didn't come through for them, they were finished. You don't want to be in this by yourself. You don't have what it takes. And if you think you have what it takes, he will put you in a situation where you will discover very quickly you don't have what it takes. This is how many of us come to Christ. We think we can handle it. We think we can do it. We think we can do it all. We can have it all. Blah, blah, blah. And then he lets us hit a brick wall and we wind up in the fetal position and we, we are weak. And we call on his name. Best thing that ever happened. Three. Behold, uh, verse three. Children are a gift of the Lord. Our culture thinks they're an inconvenience. Children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. Did you catch that? Like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gates. The gates was where business was conducted and commerce and the courts and all of that. Then go to Psalm 128. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in his ways. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, Psalm 128, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion, from Jerusalem, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. It doesn't get any better than that. I was talking to two guys after the noon Bible study and we're both basically in the same age bracket, the three of us. And we all got grandkids. And we were just talking about the joy of, this one guy was saying, I love it, my sons bring the grandkids over and I just sit on the couch and we interact and I watch them and I just, he said, it's the greatest thing in the world. And that's what happened at our house two nights ago. It's, it's, it's just great. It doesn't get any better than that. That's the favor of God. Mary and I were at a wedding recently and talking with the bride's family, and it turns out she said, yes, uh, I'm the sister of the bride's mother. Uh, uh, there's 11 of us children. 11. 
That's against the law. It's kind of neat to see all of them together. See, what you're doing when you're a father, you're building a civilization. You're building a little nation. You're shooting arrows, those kids, into the next generation. It affects, the family affects everything. Yeah, there are different institutions. There's a family, there's the church. Uh, There's education, which has been taken from parents and is run by the state. I mean, let's just be honest. Um, There's the entertainment. There's the media. There are institutions that are all having a say and all spewing out ideas, most of which are toxic to what God says. I was reading about a family business that is pretty well known and very successful and has um, a culture. They have a belief system. And one of their commands, one of their principles, is that their company is not for sale. Back when he was chairman, Rich Schneider summed up the thought of selling the company this way. If I did, I would be prostituting what my parents made by doing that, he told Forbes in 1989. Uh, There's money to be made by doing those things, but if you lose something, and I I don't wanna lose what I was raised with all my life. His mom and dad started this business. He was CEO. He died in his 40s. His daughter, after learning the business from the ground up, by the way, that's how it used to be done. She doesn't have an MBA. She's worth $3 billion. She's the youngest woman on Fortune's wealthiest list. Uh, She learned it from the ground up. She's only 36. She started when she was 22. There's a book called The Puritan Ethic. It talks about the origin of business schools and the origin of the concept of experts that are 24 years old that have never worked a job in their life. But they've done case studies and they've written dissertation and theses and they've read a lot of books and they make ridiculous salaries and come in and tell men who've been doing it for 30 years what they ought to be doing. They usually go from there to Washington, D.C. (laughs) Puritan ethic, it's quite a book. His daughter, who is now CEO, has said this, that they routinely get offers to sell. We've had some pretty crazy offers, she says. There's been like Saudi princes and different people throwing big numbers around at us. And I'm thinking, really? Uh, We continue to politely say no to Wall Street or Saudi princes. It's just not what we do. Their banker says, I get calls all the time on this company. 
It would be the hottest IPO out there. I admire her and the whole company for not going down the path. You do have that risk of ultimately changing the culture of the business. The culture. There's a culture. There are beliefs. There are values. There are virtues. And if you sell, that's going to be changed. She goes on and says, it's not about the money for us. Unless God sends a lightning bolt down and changes my heart miraculously, I would not ever sell. Her name is Lindsay Snyder, and she's the CEO of In-N-Out Burger. Interesting article that's on the Forbes website. Um, they have a test kitchen, and they're interviewing her in the test kitchen, and she says, honestly, I don't come here a lot because there's nothing to test. Uh, McDonald's and Burger King serves well over 80 different items. In-N-Out famously serves, serves fewer than 15. Burgers, cheeseburgers, fries, soda, milkshakes, and the signature two-patty double-double. Snyder has added just one thing, hot chocolate in 2018. When it gets real cold in California, like 41 or 42 degrees. Lindsay goes on and says, it's not about adding new products or thinking of the next bacon wrap this or that. We're making the same burger, the same fry, says Snyder, wearing black lace-up combat boots and stacks of silver bracelets on both arms. We're really picky and strategic. We're not going to compromise. And then the writer says, in and out is a culinary exception. It hasn't evolved much since Lindsay's grandparents founded it in 1948. Buns are baked with slow-rising dough each morning. Three central facilities grind all the never-frozen meat, delivering daily to 333 restaurants. Nearly all of its locations are in California, and all are company-owned. In-N-Out does not franchise. It's one of their values. It's one of their commandments. Heat lamps, microwaves, and freezers are banned from the premises. That's another commandment that was put in place by the grandfather. The recipe for its burgers and fries have remained essentially the same for 70 years. They didn't start to expand until, well, gosh, when they went to Vegas. And they don't foresee ever going east of Dallas because they got certain things in place. She said, I felt a deep call to make sure that I preserved those things that my family would want. That we didn't ever look to the left and the right to see what everyone else is doing, cut corners or change things drastically or compromise. That's important. I really wanted to make sure that we stayed true to what we started with. That required me to become a protector and a guardian. I won't read any more, but do you know what this article is all about? She's honoring her father and mother. She's honoring her grandfather and grandmother. When the grandfather died, and the first in and out in California, there was no place to, you couldn't sit down. It was a drive-through. You hooked up a little remote speaker. And it's just how it worked. Uh, 
when he died, one of his sons took it over, and tragically, this is a Christian family, strong Christian family. A perfect family? No. Two sons, both had their struggles, deep struggles. Uh, both failed in a number of different ways, drugs, different things. Both died in their 40s. Before Lindsay took it over at 36, her brother-in-law handled it. In and out, if you turn the cup over, there's John 3.16. She has made two changes because she's added two other scripture verses uh, to the packaging. Proverbs 24, 16, to the fries container, which says the wicked shall fall into mischief. That's, I find that very interesting. And to the coffee cups, Luke 6, 35, but love your enemies and do good. This is a Christian family, and the culture, I just, I read this this morning at 6, 30. And I'm reading this whole thing, and there's more quotes from her dad before he died and all of it. It's honoring their father and mother. We've got a culture here. We believe certain things, and we're not following the trends, and we're not following this, and we're not following that. We're doing this a certain way because we think it's honoring to our parents who are honoring God, and we want to continue that. That's healthy. Now, are we saying... If you hold to the Bible and the Ten Commandments, that you never um, replace your eight-track cartridge in your pickup truck. Uh, yeah, that's what we're saying. <laughs> well, you better replace it at some point because you can't get any more eight-track cartridges. It, this doesn't mean that we don't keep up with things to help us do our work better. It just means on certain things you don't compromise certain bedrock moral principles that are based in the character of God. Am I making sense? We're surrounded by culture, and most of the culture is anti-truth, now anti-Bible, anti-God. But we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are, as men, as husbands, as fathers, grandfathers, we are to be building a different culture for God's glory and for his purposes in this culture that is departed from the truth of God. Culture is important. And different cultures teach different things. Rabbi Zacharias once said, in some cultures, people love their neighbors. In other cultures, they eat them. And that's true. Now, why is that true? Because they have different morality. They have different beliefs. They have different values. They have different virtues. The Ten Commandments are based on the character of God Almighty.
They are the basis of all ethics, of all law, of all truth. It's the gold standard. It's for all people in all time and all cultures. It's for us and our children. Tim Keller has observed that in our culture, in our times, there are four narratives that define us. And, and we're living, and we talked about this before, we're living in a culture that says there is no absolute truth, but these narratives are absolute truth for those who don't believe in absolute truth. The first one, and again, he calls them narratives. The first one is this, the identity narrative. The identity narrative says I should be true to myself. I should be true to myself. Then you have the freedom narrative. The freedom narrative says I should be free to live any way I want so long as I'm not harming others. How long have we been hearing this? Since the 60s. I should be free to live any way I want so long as I'm not harming others. Three, the happiness narrative says I should do what makes me happy. And the morality narrative says no one has the right to tell me what is right for me. Those are the four moral narratives. Actually, in our culture, they are the four moral imperatives. What those remind me of is the book of Judges. If you read the book of Judges, the book of Judges is the history of the decline of Israel. And they would have these cycles of decadence. You, you, can, read about, you can read about the rise and fall uh, of great nations. Toynbee did a study on that. Sir John uh, Grubb did a study on that you will find that great civilizations would last usually no more than 250 years. And if I'm not mistaken, Toynbee was the one who said, there, and, and I'm doing this off the top of my head, there are five phases. There's, uh, there's early growth and beginnings. Then secondly, there is um, an acceleration of expansion and productivity. Third, there is affluence and prosperity. Fourth, there is internal decline. Fifth, there's destruction. Where are we on that? We're four, maybe four and a half, maybe four, seven. Once again, I'm just here to encourage you. But you see it, I see it. God's been gracious. We, we right now, have, have, I mean, listen. God's been gracious. We don't deserve these mercies. But he's been gracious. The reason this reminds me of the book of Judges, these four narratives, in Judges 21, verse 25, you read this, and this is sort of the epitaph on the book of Judges. 
and every man did what was right in his own eyes. What happened to the book of Judges? They absolutely departed from God's moral law, totally, completely. Where are we? We have totally departed from God's moral law. Let's get back to fathers and um, the fact that fathers should have a long-term plan for their families. Um, This is what we find in Scripture. This uh, commandment, honor thy father and mother, are primarily addressed to adults. They would apply to little children. We've talked about this before. But they're addressed to fathers. Fathers who have a mother and father, if they're still alive, you want to honor them as best you can. As we quoted Wayne Grudem last week, when you're an adult, you honor your father and mother, but you are not required to obey them. Why? because you've established your own household and you're an adult. When you're a child, you're required to honor your father and mother by obeying them, you see. But then kids grow up and go through phases of life. We've talked about this. So, um, these three things that I mentioned in regard to having a long-term plan for your family This is critical stuff. It's wrapped up with eternity. The first one is fathers are to appropriately discipline their children. Um, If you look at Ephesians 6, 4, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. In fact, I'm going to spend very little time on it. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Don't frustrate them by being, the idea is being unreasonable or excessively harsh or abusive. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Um, Fathers are to discipline. When you read Proverbs, we are told when our children are little that we are to, if you want to know how to, raise a child <laughs> when all else fails read the directions read Proverbs the Prover- Proverbs will talk about the rod now that, that a rod what do you, what do you, we're not talking abuse we're not talking about inappropriate uh, punishment we're not talking about excessive we're talking about training a child that if they don't obey there are consequences and there are negative Consequences that will accrue into their life that are appropriate to the transgression. Uh, They're a different rod. I'm not going to quote all the Proverbs passages, but children are to be disciplined. My mom had a rod. She would go out and get a little uh, sucker off a tree. It was a little... uh, it was a little switch. 
and a lot, we lived in Central California, it was hot most of the time, and she'd just switch me on the, and my brothers, there were three of us, it was chaos, it was a communist revolution every day. And she'd get that switch and, okay, okay, mom, okay. Did she love me? Yeah. Would she do anything for me? Yeah. My third grade teacher, Mrs. Lamert, about 70, 75, she could have been 175. She was old, smart as a whip, about 4'11", about 85 pounds. I'm going to tell you something. Mrs. Lamert could have stopped a gang war in downtown LA. She had a ruler, Stephen. I wasn't even Catholic. I was doing anything. Stephen, I'd go up there and I mean, that woman was to be feared. She went to our church. She loved the Lord. She had a well-marked Bible. She was a godly woman. She had control of that classroom. And she loved us all. My dad had a belt. Daddy, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry, Dad. And he'd start, uh, Daddy, he didn't have metal on his belt. He just had a little. He said, I know you're sorry. He's very calm. He's very, he's just real calm. He's not, he, not angry. He's not losing his temper. He's just very calm. And Daddy, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry, Daddy. He said, I know, you, I know you're sorry. Come here. Daddy, I'm really, he goes, I know, I know. He said, and then he had talked to me. He said, Steve, did we not talk about this? How many times did we talk about this? How many times did I tell you? Was it not clear, or was it clear? It, it, was, it was clear, it was clear. I mean, this is embarrassing. I mean, I'm 23 years old. This is. <laughs> and then you know what my dad would do? He'd take that belt off, and he would hold me. I'd be like this, and he'd hold my arm, and he'd take that belt, and he'd give me a few whacks on the butt. And I'm watching him, because you know, the, you gotta get your timing right. Because you, you never want to go in, you want to go with. You go with. There's a whole theology to that. But my dad loved me. He never abused me. I learned that my dad meant what he said for my good. I'm telling you, On many occasions when I was in high school, I could have gotten in a lot of trouble with my friends. And I wouldn't go with them because I was afraid of my dad. I knew he'd find out. He always found out. Not, I, I, I wasn't terrified of him, but I was, my dad meant what he said. And I remember one time after that football game when those guys pulled up in that 66 Chevy with their girlfriends and they had that girl, I won't give her name, but she was there. And she said, come on, Steve, go with us to the party. Now we got that keg, Steve, in the trunk. Come on, come on. And I had to be home by a certain time. And I said, no, I got to get back. 
I'm grateful that my dad was that way. I really am. Your discipline changes as they get older. John's given me permission to tell this story. His junior and senior year, he really kind of got off the track. And we have this principle that privileges are based on responsible behavior. And uh, he kept pushing us and pushing us. So, you know, if you're responsible, you get more privileges. If you're responsible, you get less. Where we lived was out in the country back then. It's built up now, but that was 20 years ago. And it was a long way to school. I had a little Jeep. I let John drive it, take his brother to school. He came home one day just before his senior year started. He looked around, he goes, Dad. He said, Dad, where's my Jeep? And I said, that's my Jeep, not yours. He said, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, where is it? I said, I gave it away. And he said, he couldn't, I mean, he, he, he was speechless. He said, Dad, you gave it away. I said, yeah, family needed a vehicle, and I just gave it to him. He said, Dad, is this this privilege responsibility thing? I said, oh, you're very astute. <laughs> he said, Dad, I can't believe you did that. I said, yeah, I can't either. And it didn't have to happen. But John, you just kept pushing me. And let's think back over the last year. So let's go back, actually, to last summer. You remember this? And then that? And then that? I said, John, I can't let you do this. I can't do it. I love you too much. He said, Dad, Dad, but school's about to start. I'm a senior. I said, I know. He said, I'm going to get to school. I said, there's a bus stop right on the corner. He said, Dad, I'm a senior. I said, hey, you'll be the biggest guy on the bus. <laughs> That's a true story. So John and Christina are over at the house the other night with his two little boys, four and two. It's kind of fun to watch him. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. There's this whole mindset that we're not to discipline our kids. When all else fails, read the directions. To not discipline is child abuse. Second thing about the plan. Fathers are to teach and transfer God's truth. If you read Deuteronomy 6, it's written to fathers and grandfathers. Grandfathers are not off the hook. See, this is why we call it a long-term plan. He says in Deuteronomy 6, this is the commandments, the statutes, the judgments which the Lord your God. Oh, by the way, Deuteronomy 6 comes after Deuteronomy 5. Now, there's an insight. What's in Deuteronomy 5? The Ten Commandments. These are the statutes, the commandments, the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you so that you might do them in the land which you are going over to possess so that you and your sons and your grandsons 
might fear the Lord. And then, right-hand page, I think it's verse 6 or 7, next page, he tells them they're to love God deeply and they're to teach their children diligently. Deuteronomy 6. If you look at 6.5, you shall love the Lord God with, with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. How do you teach... Um, and transfer the truth. Well, it's got to be in your life first. Jesus has to be first in your life, and you got to put the Word of God in your heart. That's how you learn to love Him. The more you're in His Word, the more you'll love Him. The more you'll get Him, the more you'll understand Him. Verse 6 says, These words which I'm commanding you today shall be in your heart. You got to put the Word of God in your heart, in your mind, in your life. That's why you're at Bible study. God bless you for that. Really what you've got here, before you teach, you've got to love God deeply. And then secondly, you teach your children diligently. You see verse 7? You shall teach them, what? The words which are on your heart, diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Well, we talked about this before, but basically you're walking through life with them. And as you walk through life with them, you're teaching. You're teaching. They're watching you, they're observing you, and you're teaching. This is why you can't spend all your time at work. You gotta work, you gotta provide, that takes a lot of time. But your most important work is here. This is your most important work. And we've all fallen short, and we've all screwed up and made mistakes, all that. That's over, it's done with. All you can do is what you got left. It's today and tomorrow, and you talk to your wife, and you start making some choices and decisions. That'll give you more time. See, you can't be distant, you have to be connected to teach. James Carroll said, the curse of fatherhood is distance, and the good fathers spend their lives trying to overcome it. You want to be connected. You want to... You want to get into their hearts. You want to know what's going on. They need to know you're for them and you love them. They need to know that. Don't have time to go to Psalm 78, but truth is to be transferred from one generation to the next. Lastly, We have a long-term plan by modeling truth with uh, humility. Let me say this. Because they're watching so carefully, kids and grandkids, if you blow it, go to them and make it right. That's humility. I've watched a man over the years, and when there's a conflict or there's something, here's his phrase. Christian leader, by the way. Well, if I was wrong, I apologize. That's not an apology, is it? Corey Ten Boom once said the blood of Jesus has never cleansed an excuse. They don't expect us to be perfect. I think they have a right to expect us to be honest and authentic. Don't you? 
Don't you love it when someone is authentic and real and honest and they humble themselves? That's authenticity. If you blow it, go fix it. Go fix it. Keep short accounts. Don't let a cancer, don't let it foul and fester and gangrene get in the family. Go deal with it. Just deal with it. If we confess our sins, for Psalm 9, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'll, I'll close with this. Years ago, I read a letter. Folks on the family used, and they may still have, a magazine for adolescent girls. And a girl had written in asking for some advice and basically said, I've been raised in a Christian home. I'm so confused. I used to know it was right. But I, at times I want to die. I want to kill myself. I'll go out with boys and I'll go too far and I'll be inappropriate. And I know it's wrong and I never would have done it before, but I'm doing it now and I'm not sure. I'm just so confused. And it all started when I walked into my daddy's office looking for that book and I pulled open a file drawer and found those pornographic magazines. And my dad is not only my dad, but he's the pastor of my church. Well, there you go. Right there, that explained everything. She's just utterly confused because what she is watching is confusing and makes no sense. Watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flows the wellsprings of life. If you're in sin, repent. Thomas Watson said, repentance is the vomiting of the soul. It's the dry heaves. Don't excuse it. Deal with it. I know men in this room that have done that. I've had to do that. It models grace. It models mercy. It models the love of God. And God heals when that's done. Let's pray. Father, You've been very good to us. We love your word. We love your truth. We love our families. Some of us had good dads. Some of us had lousy dads. Some of us don't even know who our dads were. Yet we're following you and we're trying to start our own civilization. Maybe there's been deep sin and dysfunction for generations, but Lord, you give us the opportunity when we come to you with whole hearts to put a new link in the family chain. It's got to start with one man somewhere. Help us, Lord, to get under your authority. Help us in our heart of hearts to get all in with you. Thank you for your incredible mercy and forgiveness. 
And that you not only forgive us and forget our sin, but you will sustain us. You will help us with temptation if we will ask you. You promise to do that. Pray that you will enter not into temptation. If we've got it, we need to pray on it. You'll help us. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.